Welcome to The Interview with Leslie Heaney, a podcast that features informational and inspirational stories from experts in everything from fashion and the arts to medicine and science. The interview covers any and all topics that are timely and relevant to our lives today. I'm host Leslie Heaney, and I'm excited to share these compelling stories with you. I promise you'll be inspired, learn something new, and hopefully share a few laughs along the way. Today, I'm beyond excited to be talking with New York legend, Jamie Niven. Jamie is the former chairman of Sotheby's and an auctioneer extraordinaire. He's lent his auctioneering skills to over 750 charities around the world, raising over $800 million for various causes over the years. Before Sotheby's, Jamie had a very successful career in investment banking and private equity, while still dedicating his time and talent to various philanthropic causes, including serving on the board of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and the Museum of Modern Art for decades. Today, Jamie is currently lending his talents and passion to the Bloomberg Philanthropies Board and to the Partnership to End Addiction, serving as its chairman. In today's episode, Jamie talks about his exciting career in life, including what it was like to be the son of Hollywood legend David Niven. Jamie is brilliant, a terrific storyteller, and absolutely hilarious. So without further ado, Jamie Niven. Jamie. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm so happy to see you. You you flew in last night? I did. You were in Paris? I was in Paris. I flew all the way for this. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I, I, I love you for doing that. I'm so happy you're here. Um, what, were you, what were you doing over there? I uh, just uh, went over after Christmas and spent okay. a week. Good. Good. Are you back now? I'm back here for a while. I'm going to Mississippi in a couple of weeks to meet with some of the local state senators about the money they're receiving from the government for the opioid fines and how they're going to spend it. Oh, wow. There's about $50 billion that's coming out. It's going to go to various locations around the country, and they're going to figure out what to do with that money to help with the addiction problems. Oh, tell me about that. Well, this is all the fines that have been levied against the people that were involved in producing opioids. And that money has now been allocated out to various states, and then the states in turns will allocate it to the various communities um, where they are trying very hard to figure out ways to get the message to families that there's a solution to all this and that here's how you here, here's who you can contact this is what you can do to to help your family and it's all about all about the government trying to help families deal with the opioid crisis that is incredible now how are they determining which states are getting the funding I don't know based the answer on... to that but it's it's just started now okay because um you know we live in millbrook and and um it's you know by you know all sort of appearances it's a a sleepy town um my husband was for many years a volunteer firefighter there and one of the biggest issues that they had most frequent calls was for ods and so um having narcan kits was a you know i don't know if that's part of it if it's more treatment well that's that's very people should have they should have them absolutely yeah but you know millbrook was the was the bedrock of lsd because that was the days that uh Timothy Leary yes. spent some time there with the Hitchcock place. Yeah, which is still there. And the guy that's there, it's kind of like Willy Wonka. He doesn't leave the premises, premises too often. It's large. It's huge. Yeah, big gate, I remember. Big gate. Um, yeah. And there's a guy in town, uh, God bless him, who, you know, the rumor is he was part of that group and right. he never really kind of recovered. Hitch um, is a great friend of mine. He lives in Houston. Oh, really? Yeah, Billy. Um. All right, we, I, that's so interesting. I didn't. I want to get more 
Okay. I want to hear more about you your. You have that, that in your in your notes. I there. do. Yeah. I do. Jamie's seen my notes yeah. for all our listeners beforehand, just so I didn't touch any topics that that he didn't. Um, comfortable dealing. Wa- want to cover? Right. Um, although you did tell me that nothing is off limits, which I. <laughs> which probably has your children that are listening. My, my children are both out. very frightened when I say <laughs> things like that, but I'm not kidding. <laughs> I know you're I'm not. I'm 78. Kidding. What am I going to change I know. now? Listen, I mean, I, I'm it. with you. I'm 50, and I feel like I'm letting it all hang out. Yeah, of so, course. you know, well, we're, we're, you know, when you're on the second, the back nine, well, you've got to. You, you're just listen, starting the back nine. No, I've, I've played about know. seven holes. So <laughs> i got two to go. Hopefully, get to, get to a tie and have to play some extra holes. I mean, you're, are you kidding? Um, all right. So for people that are listening and just to sort of get yeah. kind of the origin of, of Jamie Niven um, and may not know who, who your dad, David Niven, was um, or don't really understand what a big, huge star he was. Right. Um, tell us about a little bit about him. OK, so my father was uh, uh, he was raised in, in, in England. He was British. Uh, his father was killed in World War One. So his father was killed very early on, like 1914. So he grew up essentially without a father. Okay. And uh, he was able to get himself into the military academy, which is called Sandhurst, which, yep. is, which is what you have here is called West Point. And after he was finished his studies there, he was commissioned to the Isle of Malta, where he spent four years as a, as a British Army officer. Uh, England had a, had a division there, and that's where okay. the, a lot of the ships in the Mediterranean were kept. Um, he decided that he hated being in the army, and he left. He resigned his commission, got on a boat, came to America. Did and he the, ever tell you what was the why America? Why he? Did, uh, he told me that he hated being in the army because it was so boring. Okay. Uh, and that he just felt that it didn't sit well with him. And why he came to America was because he thought that he could come to America like a lot of people. Yeah, did. yeah. Now to about 1934, um, the depression was over. And it was the land of opportunity. And so he arrived, and he was picked up by a friend of a friend of a friend off the boat. Uh, as, they, as they did back, as they back did, then, yeah. Yeah, and they went to lunch at 21, because the man was called Jack Hemingway. He was from St. Louis. And uh, he took him to, to lunch at 21, where he went all the time. And the owner of 21 came over and said, Who you got here, Jack? Who's this good-looking guy? Who is this guy here, Jack? This is David Niven. David Niven, what do you do? I don't do anything. Or not. Well, I just resigned my commission from the British Army. Do you know about wine? I know how to drink it. Good, you're hired. And he hired him as a salesman for 21 Brands, which is, was a shop next to 21, which today is the Museum of Broadcasting. Oh, stop it, was, it, yeah. But it was a place you bought smoked salmon and ham and wine and champagnes. And my father worked there. And he worked as a sommelier at night where they needed him at 21, which in those days was the number one yeah, restaurant of in the world, right? And I guess in the process of working there, he met several people, and one of them was a woman called Loretta Young, who was a big star yeah. in those days, and she said, you must come and visit me in California. Like a lot of people say, oh, next time you're in town, call me. Well, he took it seriously, and he ended up getting to California. Needless to say, no Loretta, Loretta Young on the end of the phone. And so he got a job as a deckhand on a small boat that you would charter out of San Pedro and go fishing off Catalina Island, and that's what he did. And one day, that one of the biggest stars in the world was called Merle Oberon, chartered the boat. And he was sort of baiting her hook and all this stuff yeah. that you do as a deckhand. And she rather liked him. So they started seeing each other. By the way, I, I Googled her. Yeah, she's Merle big. She's, she's big. Big and also, I mean. Beautiful. Yeah. Which um, means he knew how to reel in, you know, more than just the. 
the fish that were, you know, yeah, he had some other but, skill sets, but she, obviously. But, but she, she really liked him, and they started seeing each other. And she was under contract to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, actually, to Sam Goldwyn, Goldwyn Studios. And she called up Sam and said, I've got this good-looking boyfriend. Um, see if you can use him. So Sam, being a nice guy, hired my father to be an extra. An extra, for all you know, is the, when you see a crowd scene and no one no one's speaking, that's what an extra does. That's what an extra is. Anyway, he had good charm and he had good looks, and because of her, he got to know some of the big people there in Hollywood. And slowly but surely, he got more and more parts in movies and speaky parts, and then he became a friend of Errol Flynn, who was one of the biggest stars in the world. And they had a, a house they shared called Cirrhosis by the Sea. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And was so, it just like, the two of them, or was there other roommates? Just, well, yeah. I, I think there were roommates, yeah. but we don't go into that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, anyway, my father ends up making a very big-time movie called Wuthering Heights, which starred Laurence yep. Olivier and Merle Oberon, and he played the part of the cuckold husband uh, of Merle. And after that movie was out, uh, Germany had invaded Poland, and England declared war, and he went back to fight. And uh, he was in the commando when he got back to England, and he stayed in the army and fought through France uh, and made a couple of movies that were movies sort of to help raise money for the war effort. And he went back to California when the war was over at late, late 45 and picked up what was left of his career, which wasn't much. And he had a rough time. And my brother and I were born... Uh, our mother sadly had died uh, very early on. In my in my case, she died when I was six months old, and so he was sort of faced with a career that was nowhere. Uh, he married a insane Swedish woman. Forgive me, all of you who are rel- relatives of hers, and um, and there we are. And he 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 had a rough time. We lived in California. Yeah, I went to school out in California, and. Um, in 1958, my father won the Academy Award for Best Actor in a movie called uh, Separate Tables. And that was a big deal. To win the Academy Award was a big deal, and he did. So how did he, so first of all, how admirable of him to re-enlist and go back to fight for his Yeah, but you're a country. British Army officer. Yeah. Go back. There's yeah. no issue. A lot of people didn't, as I understand. Yeah. Not him. He went back. That's That really says a lot, I think, about Well, anyway, so he, he won yeah. the Academy Award, and... Yeah. He then really starred in a lot of big movies. and, um, and uh, So what was the timing of that, though? So he came back in 1945. Right at the end of 45. Okay. And Separate Tables was 1958. So. Right, so he worked. He made a bunch of movies in okay. that period of time. Made quite a few, actually, but none particularly good, Okay, I would say, except for the first one he made, which was called uh, A Matter of Life and Death, which was a very good movie in 1945-46. But he had a rough time. And um, in 1955... Um, Michael Todd was a very famous movie producer, um, had the rights to Around the World in 80 Days, which was a Jules yep. Byrne story. And he got my father to play the lead role in that called Phineas Fogg. And it's about the story of a man that goes around the world in 80 days. And it was a huge success, this movie. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, so he was on a roll. Yep. And starred in a bunch of movies and then made Separate Tables, uh, which was a Terrence Rattigan play. Uh, made into a movie, black and white movie, and he won the Academy Award for that. And he went on to make a lot of big-time movies after that. Um, In 1960, he decided to leave California and go and live in Europe. What what was the reasoning for that? I I think it's pretty simple. He was was British, and I think he honestly thought two things. 
one, taxes, no question about yep. it. He was paying no taxes in Switzerland, 90% tax in America at that point. And Is so, that right? Yeah, because until John Kennedy became president, tax rate in America was very, very high, at the high end. So you, you, got, you got to 90 fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. And two, that he found himself getting job offers to make movies in Europe, and he wanted to go live in Europe for the rest of his life. And so he bought a house in Switzerland, and he also bought a house in the south of France in 1960. And I moved with him, obviously, because he was my only parent. So we lived in Switzerland. And um, and you had been at St. Paul's I went to St. Paul's School for Boys, yeah. um, which was really horrible because I came from California and and spoke, you know, bitching, it's good to see you, Sheer. <laughs> and all these people at St. Paul's, Jesus, what's it like living in California? It must be mama. <laughs> and I really didn't like it much. And we didn't get a lot of ice time in Pacific Palisades, California. Yeah. yeah. And St. Paul's School was the cradle of American it, hockey. It's oh, cold. it's also like a, a journey to the, the North Pole. I well, mean, it, it is cold. It's chilly up there. It was there. cold, and, and I, I had better weather. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, so I convinced him that I should go to school in Switzerland, which I did. I went to school in Lausanne, um, which is a lovely town in, yep. on Lake Geneva. And my father's house wasn't that far from there, like an hour and a half by train. Anyway, my father went on to make a lot of movies, and and he was... I don't know. He was one of these characters. They, they they would bring him on board to be an MC at the Academy Awards, and well, he was he was the, the fam- host that year with the famous streaker. Yeah, right? he was yeah. streaked. He was introducing Elizabeth Taylor, who was going to give a Best Picture away. The streaker came out when he was about to introduce her, and he now was that a thing then? That was like yeah. streaking, like hair was out. And I, then, I had yeah. a friend of mine who streaked El Morocco. I remember the <laughs> nightclub one night, and and people streaked airplanes. Mm. Oh, yeah. And the other thing they streaked was football fields. And so you saw a streaking going on at Michigan State, you know, <laughs> games and all that. It was big. I mean, streaking should be, you know, yeah, brought back. I, I, thought, I, I, I thought it was a very good idea. Yeah. Although the guy that streaked on Morocco wasn't very pretty. <laughs> um, anyway, so they, they were very worried about a streaker getting in there. They had tremendous security that year. And the guy had hid backstage. And then when the moment came for my father to introduce Elizabeth, out, this guy roared and, you know, snuck by him. And nobody even saw he's, this guy's starting to take his shirt off. He's no, no, he came out down. stark naked, <laughs> giving the V for victory sign. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's very easy. It's still and he, I, I did watch it, and there was some it, amazing quip that he said it, about, it, I think, referring to his, his, yeah, he his said, manhood. Yeah, he said, the only way this man is going to get a laugh is to strip off and show his shortcomings. <laughs> uh, and that was that was a pretty good put down. Anyway, so... At that, around that time, my father started to write some books, and he wrote a couple of very successful books. One was called The Moon's a Balloon, which was about himself, and the other was Bring on the Empty Horses, which was about Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. These were big bestsellers, uh, number one on the bestseller list for a number of weeks. The second book, Bring on the Empty Horses, was on the bestseller list in America for 51 weeks. Wow. That's big. They sold millions of copies, these books. And he went on to write a few more. Um. So that's the story of him. And then he, and so he stayed in Switzerland and... And, and, and France, but and, he worked in America and he worked elsewhere. He just he had the choice of going to where he wanted to. He, he, he basically made a movie a year. Um, he did a lot of commercials. His books were tremendously yeah. successful. He went on speaking tours all over the place, talking about the books. Yeah, I would say that uh, he sadly got Lou Gehrig's disease and yeah. he died when he was 73, which is obviously young. And uh, But he was... 
he was the real deal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what, what for, for you though? What was it? I mean, you talked about going to St. Paul's uh, and sort of the the culture, you know, divide had, there. But what, he, he having, had no idea of anything to do with education. He, he, he I, I, looking back on it now, you know, you expect your parents to be brilliant at everything, but there was no way he he he'd gone to military academy. Yeah. He didn't have a clue what was. Anyway, his idea in life for me was that I would go to Trinity College, Cambridge, because my mother's family had all gone there. My mother came from a very long line of Scottish family, 24 generations, I think we are wow. strong right now. So the idea that I would go to Trinity College, Cambridge, which was, had some good to it, because I went to London and lived there when I was 16, alone in my apartment, and I went to school for an hour a day. Um, Wait, when was that? A- after St. Paul's after, before? After I left St. Paul's and went to school in Switzerland. Okay. And so after three years in Switzerland, I ended up in London, ostensibly to, to, to work on my... But you finished your, your kind of their version of high school. You're like a Doogie yeah, Hauser. You're really. 16 and you're... Okay. Not really. Okay. It, it, it well, didn't work like that. Um, We're talking about 1960. Yeah. You know, so anyway, I ended up uh, being in London, which was fabulous and loved every minute of it. Had my own apartment, had my car. I was, it was, it's the best. Yeah. And I behaved really badly. It was fantastic. And um, anyway, in the process of working towards taking my entrance exams to Cambridge, I had applied to, uh, <laughs> just because I was angry with my father at the time, I applied to UCLA because I wanted to go back and live in California because I really yeah. loved living in California. And I thought I'd get into UCLA. I wanted to go to the film school. I had all kinds of good ideas, right? Nope, turned down, which was disappointing. Why? That's uh, not th- well, I was applying as a Swiss resident, and UCLA is a state school. Oh, so they only and they have very few people from foreigners they take in, as it was explained yeah. to me. And I just didn't get one yeah. of the three or four slots. I did, however, apply to this college called Harvard University, Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, no one's ever heard of it. And yeah. and I got a letter back from Boston from Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, I went for an interview in London. They always tried to interview the kids that were yeah, applying, yeah. and there were a lot of people applying for four places, four English students. And I went to the interview, and I thought, forget it, this is not happening. And I, I thought nothing more of it. Um, terribly disappointed I was turned down. But I noticed in the turn-down letter from UCLA, it was a very thin envelope. And about a week later, I got this big, thick envelope from Harvard. And I thought, this is not possible. Yeah. And I opened it up, and sure enough, they'd, they'd taken me. So I ended up going to Harvard. And Amazing. And how was, that, how was the news received? Very badly. Okay. Uh, he didn't want to pay. Uh, he was furious about it. He thought I should go to Cambridge. But what he didn't know is I called the guy at Trinity College, Cambridge, the man that I had yeah, yeah. talked to, and, t- and said I had a dilemma. And he's, he told me I didn't have a dilemma. I never told my father this, but I said, what do you mean? He said, if you're stupid enough to turn down Harvard while you haven't passed your entrance exams, you don't belong here. Wow, that's great. So I said, just out of curiosity, where did you go to college? He said, Trinity College, Cambridge. I said, great. Where did you do your graduate work? Harvard, Mr. (laughs) Niven. I wish you well, he said. And he hung up. So I didn't have a place to go. So when I told my father that I'd accepted to Harvard, he didn't realize that's all I had. But anyway, I went there, and um, it was not well received. I'll put it that way. So tell me though, tell me. So you're you're in L.A. and I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of other kids, or not 
I don't know how many, but other kids at school who had parents that were in the business. I, I didn't. I went to Catholic school when I was in California, okay. and none of the kids there had parents in the game. Okay. On the weekends, I would play with kids that had parents in. The yeah. Game. So yeah, I grew up with a bunch of Hollywood kids, but during the week, I was in Catholic school. Yeah, and how? But how was that? How was that? You know, growing up with a father that was so famous. I mean, did you feel, you know? You're being stopped at the airport. You're, yeah. Was it that kind of a thing, or was it not like that back it then? Didn't, it didn't really see much of him. I mean, that's the thing that one has to remember here. That, that Also, the way people were brought up, if they had means in those days, they had nannies. And I never really, my stepmother, I never interfaced with at all, basically. And my father was busy working or whatever, yeah. and so I didn't see much of him. So, honestly, it wasn't such a big hardship to have him as a parent because I never saw him. Yeah. Um, and we would sometimes go on family trips, and they were usually disastrous. And That's for everybody, by the way. I, I, yeah. I, all I'm telling you right now is I've heard from everybody. So not everybody, but people who were, who were lucky enough to have been brought up in a certain milieu. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, so. That, that was not an uncommon. Totally you know, not. Right. No matter totally what not. business that your parents no. were in. No. I, I, um, I, so, but saying, was it, was it difficult having him as a father? No, would be my answer. Um, I wish that I had been closer to him. I did become close to him later on in life, but I was very distant from him in all those years up until, well, up until I was about thirty. Yeah, and and it, you know, having lost your mom at such a young age, that yeah. that you know, it cannot you know be an easy experience. I don't think anyone has an easy experience when yeah. you lose a parent. But yeah. losing a mother is a whole lot harder than losing a father. I think. Yeah. You know, I say that because that happened to me. But I mean, not having her around was. That was tough. Yeah. I think looking back on my life, that was really a, a body blow. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah, I'm afraid so. And it showed. How um, your father, mm. you know, is known as a great storyteller. Very good. Great rock and tour. I, I watched a bunch of his clips on yeah. um, Dick Cavett, which are hilarious, by the way. Do you yeah. know the story of he was banned from Columbia Pictures? Yeah. Because um, I guess the head, this guy named Cohen, he was yeah. he was out in the boat with Errol Flynn. Do you yeah. know the story? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, but he, his interviews with Cabot were great. His interviews with uh, Parkinson in England were great. And Parkinson was the great interviewer. Okay. David Frost and then Parkinson. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he did a lot of Parkinson exhibit uh, interviews, and uh, I mean, he did a lot. I mean, he was on. Is it you have you have a favorite story that he told you about you know or my favorite story is the Academy Awards the where, where the streaker yeah, gets, yeah, yeah. gets nailed by him. Yeah. I think that to me was the, the classic and number uno story of a lifetime. But he was a great raconteur. He wasn't a joke teller, but he was a wonderful storyteller. Right. And um, well, the story about Cohen for those that are listening, I mean he. He was, I think it was with Errol Flynn or Noel Coward, one or the other, on a boat coming back from would, Catalina Island. It would have been Errol Flynn. And um, this guy, this, they just see this boat is broken down. Yeah. And they go up, and it's Cohen, who's the head of Columbia Pictures. He was, yes. And um, Harry Cohen. And, exa- and they helped tow him in and, like, help yeah. me out. And, you know, and uh, your father was at MGM then, I think. Um, and they get the boat in, and then the next day, your father sends him a letter. Yeah. Saying, is he aware that in maritime law, yeah. he actually they own part of the boat? Yeah. <laughs> the boat for t- anyway, and I guess he was banned. And, mm-hmm. you know. He was. 
And he went in his office, right, and apologized. Yeah. So you know this whole thing. I'm, I'm yeah. telling you a story, you know. No, no, I thought yeah. it was hilarious. And I guess Cohen didn't think it was hilarious. No. But I, you know. Took it very badly. I love that. That's he, he, very, very Niven. Um, very Niven. Humor. He had a very, I mean, if you read, if you read the books, you'll see the, the wit is, is prevalent throughout. I mean, I remember I, um, he had this beautiful house in the south of France. And, and people would stop in their boats opposite the house. And the house had its own port. So he liked me to row him out to lunch on the rowboat. Yeah. I'm not kidding, a rowboat. <laughs> and uh, he'd get up, and, and one time we were getting on Sam Spiegel's book, and Sam Spiegel was a huge movie producer, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, all that. And um, Sam Goldman, at a very old age, was on the boat, and my father gets on the boat, and I'm following up behind him, and my father says, Sam, you look great. And, and he said, Always a pallbearer, never a corpse. And, and, and that began... By the way, that's an amazing line. That, that began that afternoon where there was just a constant stream of funny stories and, and Hollywood stories. And, so know. tell me, though, do, do you have a... You also, as are your children, and, and your grandson, by the way, yeah. great storytellers, yeah. great senses of humor. I mean, what do you have any... What's your favorite... Do you have a favorite story from your Hollywood days or... I don't really, I mean, there are so many stories that I don't really have one in particular. I, and I, and, and you know, I, honestly, there were, there was a constant flow of funny remarks about things. Yeah. My, my father could make a story out of buying oranges. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was, he had, he had wonderful friends who were very talented, mostly in the theater business. You know, my father was never a theater actor. Um, Noel Coward in particular was his best friend. And uh, Noel would come and spend three weeks with us in the south of France. And, uh, and that's a long time for anyone to come and spend yeah. your house. And I had a job of taking Noel around if he wanted to go to the casino at night. Say managing, managing. I, I was the manager, yeah, for about three <laughs> weeks. Um, and so there was my father every year invited Noel and his household to come uh, and have Boxing Day lunch in Switzerland. Yeah. We have to live in a little town called Chateau Day. And, and there was a train that went from Montreux up to Chateau Day and then Gestad, which is much more famous than all the other yeah, things yeah. are. And Noel lived in a house, a little place called Les Avons, and he'd arrive every Boxing Day with a house full of people. And every Boxing Day, these 10 people, all in mink coats, men and women, in the back of the train, coming up to Chateau Day, and my father got the station master to put on his gold uniform and the hat and all the thing, and the band played Rule Britannia, and they'll always be in England. <laughs> and they would get off the back of the train and stagger up to the where we were all waiting, and the Swiss people going skiing were looking at us with their goggles, and their, you know, those, those trains weren't very glam. You stood up in those trains with skis, looking out at this procession of people in <laughs> mink coats, and the band and the, the buffet de la gare, waiter with drinks, and my father would say... Look at the view, though. I've seen the view. Um, don't you love the songs? I wrote the songs. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was just like that sort of a lot of the time yeah. of, of funny moments of life. And it's just that but the people really, in the house weren't called Smith and Jones. They yeah. were called Olivier. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was there anyone, any guests that he had or celebrity that you met that you were ever, you were ever starstruck by or... Greta Garbo, for yeah. sure, because she used to swim naked in the pool in, in, wow. in, in Pacific Palisades. I was pretty young then. 
Then we moved to Switzerland. That's a shame. It's, it didn't well, wait, happen later. There's, there's, yeah. a bit, there's a bit more to this because later on in life, now we're in the south of France, and she had then was now living with a man in the south of France, and she'd come over a lot because he was a really good friend of yeah. hers. And she'd swim naked in the pool. <laughs> and then I was 15 and 16, and uh, and she once came up to me, and I was sitting with my feet in the pool. I was just looking at her, and she said... Backstroke, breaststroke? She was just swimming anywhere she wanted to. <laughs> And she looked at me and said, I promised your father I wouldn't do you, otherwise I would. <laughs> oh, my God. I said, that's, just, I mean, that, that's really sad. I yeah, said. that is, that is <laughs> bad hilarious. Luck. I mean. <clears throat> the one person that remained great friends with me is, is Robert Wagner. He's now 93 years old. Wow. And they made a movie together called The Pink Panther. Yeah. Which was shot in 1960. Um, so RJ, as he's called, uh, I talked to him all the time. And uh, he's just the most wonderful man. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and he calls me Young Young or Mr. Harvard Man, depending on the day. Yeah. I mean, well, and he had such a, a tough time, too. Oh, man. Natalie yeah, Wood. He's and, had such a rough yeah. time. Still has a rough time. Um, how? So you, you enroll at Harvard. Right. Um, how was Harvard? You, was Loved it? it. And then you decide not to follow in the family business. I never, I never, at that point, I never thought about it. And the, the company business that my father owned with two other actors called Four Star Television was sold around that time. So no, I, when I got out of college, I went to work for Lehman Brothers. I had been offered a job at uh, CBS uh, to work on specials, which was a good thought. Like, like is in terms of production or as yeah. a broadcaster? Production. Uh, production side. Um, they would have, CBS would have specials, you know, whatever you want to call it. It might be a, an hour about a movie star. It might be an hour about yeah. a band. It might be that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was offered a job at Lehman Brothers because uh, I got an interview there. And Lehman Brothers paid me $7,500 and Bill Paley offered me five grand. He was the head of CBS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took the one that paid me $7,500. I just got married at $0. And so I never did. Uh, I... Um, you made the Lehman choice, and tell me this: I, I was on that the the television special that you were on that I had watched. You, you were talking about how I guess Mr. Lehman invited you up for a meeting or for lunch, and was encouraging you to get involved in something yeah. outside of working at Lehman. What actually happened was Bobby Lehman was his name, and he was he was around when I was hired there. Uh, Bobby Lehman died in 1970, I think it was. I went to work there full time in '68. Um, but he wasn't well towards the end of his life. And um, for those of you that live in New York, the Lehman Wing at the Met is, uh, is, is his, was his. Yeah. Um, anyway, he very soon after I joined the firm, I was sitting in my office and um, my phone rang. It never rang. And, and it was Mr. Lehman's assistant saying, Mr. Lehman would love you to come down and have a word. I didn't say, I'll, I'll come and see him tomorrow. I, I, whatever I was doing, I dropped it, went down to see Mr. Yeah, Lehman. Yeah, yeah, Hello, yeah. Mr. Lehman, how are you? How are you, Jamie? Sit down, please. By the yeah. way, kids today, those millennials would be like, I, I've got to check my schedule. Yeah. You, 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 know, you don't you, check your schedule, yeah, Bobby. No, you do no. not. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I sat down and he said, and I'm so glad you're here. Of course, I met your father several times. What a lovely guy he was. And, and what are you doing in the not-for-profit world? Well, the not-for-profit world was my world because I didn't have any money. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't pull that silly remark on him. And I said, well, to be honest with you, Mr. Lehman, I just got here. I just moved yeah. to New York, and I really hadn't thought of it. My father really wasn't that 
generous about giving money away, maybe for the Screen Actors Guild or maybe for the home or something like that. But mm, he wasn't writing any checks yeah. for cancer, let's put it that way. Anyway, I said, you know, Mr. Lehman, I don't really have any money. He said, that doesn't matter. What you have to do is you have to find something first rate, stick with it, learn all about it, so that as time goes on, you'll be able to talk about it in a meaningful way. And when you ask people for money, they'll realize you're serious about it, and you'll know what you're talking about. And if you're lucky enough to make money, well, then you'll support this institution that you have decided is in something that you want to get involved with. So I went back to By the my way, what a, what a great mentor. I mean, a, that was a great, yeah, that was great a great advice. Great lesson, yeah. I, 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 Honestly, I mean, he did that, I think, to all the people that yeah. came to work. Anyway, so I went back to my office. I was sharing with a guy. I said, what, do you, um, what did you do? And Mr. Lehman suggested that. He yeah. said, I got involved with the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I said, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, it, it, we have a meeting once a month, and researchers come and talk to us, and docs come and talk to us, and nursing staff comes and talks, and we learn all about the hospital and all the research that's going on in cancer. Sounds like a great yeah. idea, I said. I joined it. Uh, I didn't realize how important Memorial Stone County yeah. was uh, and is today. Anyway, in the process of that, uh, I and joined. And Stone Kettering back then probably was also big. You know, yeah, huge. Yeah, but big relative to what today? No, yeah, I mean it's yeah. enormous today. But anyway, I don't know. I uh, I got involved with it was called the Junior Committee, and in 1978, I got a call uh, from Lawrence Rockefeller. Lawrence Rockefeller was the key man at Memorial Stone Kettering. Yeah. His family had given the land. He was one of the five brothers. Uh, he was the most remarkable human being, a really extraordinary man. Anyway, my assistant came in and said, Mr. Lawrence Rockefeller's on the phone. And I said, tell Bill Aquavello to stop calling up and teasing <laughs> Bill Aquavello being my closest friend. Because they always said to me, hey, you haven't met Mr. Rockefeller yeah. yet? No. Anyway, uh, she said, no, this guy... Uh, doesn't sound like any of your friends. You better take the call. So I said, all right. Uh, good morning, Mr. Rockefeller. I mean, Jamie, thank you so much for taking the call. Um, and please, please call me Lawrence. Yes, Lawrence. Um, very much like you to come on the board. And I said, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, I don't really have any money. It doesn't matter, he said. You see, for these institutions to work, he said, you have to have workers and donors. If you only have workers, it doesn't work. If you only have donors, it doesn't work. So you yeah. can come on board and, be a, and be a worker. So I joined the board 45 years ago. Amazing. That's why I got involved with Memorial Amazing. Stone Kettering, because at just that time, I was chairman of that junior committee, and he decided he wanted one young person to be on the board who had spent time at the institution. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I'm very mindful of what, um, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Lehman had suggested that I get involved with something first class, and I never realized I would end up being a board member, which I now am, I think, the longest-serving board member. It's incredible. Member. I mean, and how lucky they are oh, don't to, you have, think? to have you. I do. I do, too. I do. I know all the things that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, so then you, you, you're you at Lehman Brothers. Yeah. You decide you want to, uh, you were, went to go work for a family office, or you were working in private equity? I went to work for a family office uh, after five years at Lehman, and uh we were able to make investments in various areas, one of them being spaghetti sauce, which we did very well with. That's the Aunt, Aunt Millie's. Millie's. Yeah. yeah. By the way, brilliant on the all-natural. Amazing. You know, How lucky was that? You, you were ahead of the times. It was. You were like it, organic before organic was organic. I didn't know that either. Yeah. No, I know. 
When we, when we took the ads out in the New York Times, we would underline all the bad stuff in other people's yeah. spaghetti sauce and none right. on ours. And which one would you rather serve your, your family? Sales went from a million to 20 million in about four years. It was, Amazing. Yeah, it was really huge. And unfortunately, I sold it. I got this huge offer. I, to this day, I regret not keeping it because it was such a wonderful business. And years later, I was out in uh, Singapore. Uh, I had been invited by a man called Fook Fee, believe it or not. And he ran a company called Bowstead. And Bowstead was the second oldest business in Singapore. And it had been started by my great, great, great grandfather. Oh, stop it. Well, I didn't ever heard of Edward Bowstead. Oh, which, this is on your mother's side. Mother's, no, this is on my father's, father's side. side. Father's side. Never heard of him. Nothing, right? Anyway, I had decided that, uh, when I got the call from the chairman of this company, Mr. Fook Fee, invited me to come out. Did you think that was a prank call, too? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I got the number, and I called back, you know. And um, anyway, as it turns out, he wanted me to come and speak at the 180th anniversary of the founding of Bowstead. So I went. And, How cool um, is that? It was did, cool. Did he give you all the background on your your? Oh, they sent me everything. They sent me. They didn't know very much. They just yeah. sent me all the books that had been written. Anyway, so they had a hundred, they had 850 people for dinner, including the first minister. And, and it was a big deal. Uh, this is, you know, second oldest company yeah. in Singapore. Anyway, um, I decided to, they wanted me to speak. So I, I didn't quite know what to talk about. So I talked about my father and whether Edward Bowstead would have liked what my father did. And I, I thought Edward would have, oh. Edward would have liked that. And then I talked about me. I said Edward would have liked some of the things I did, not all. But I did start a spaghetti, I did buy a spaghetti sauce company, and it was, it was wonderful, and people started to laugh. And I said, and just for all of you that are in business, just remember one thing. The most expensive ingredient in a jar of spaghetti sauce is the jar. <laughs> and all of a sudden, oh. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, spaghetti sauce, that was wonderful. Business. Yeah, and then you, but, but while you were in that role, you also, somehow you also got involved in the energy business. I did. Uh, we sold the, uh, Aunt Millie's was sold in 81, and I got involved with a company called Global Natural Resources, which was located in Houston, and ultimately I became executive chairman of it, and we were the first American company to sign a joint venture agreement in Russia in 1989, and it was, you know, kind of, kind of wonderful. Um, we... We were we were pioneers in that sense, and and, and it was a, it was a difficult time in Russia. I mean, Glasnost had yeah. taken over. Uh, the partners we had were Tartars. They were very honorable and decent. The oil field was gigantic in Tartarstan, which is about six hundred miles east of Moscow. Before you get to the Ural Mountains, and it was it was an eye opening experience of dealing with Russia at that time. Um, and but how did that work though? Because the government worked, didn't own. The government didn't own the oil fields. It was, or, or was the it oil just fields a, then? They did. That's yeah. what I thought. I yeah. would think. And then, w were you the there for the, the transition the, of the that? The government ended up owning the oil fields. I mean, the, the company that we were involved with was called Tatneft, and it had the concession in Tatarstan. I see. Okay. And they went public. Okay. Uh, who controlled it after we left? I have no idea. But anyway, so that was interesting, and and um, we sold the company. Eventually, about 1994, so I'd been chairman for five years. Anyway, it got sold, and that's when I made the move to go and work at Sotheby's. But yeah, so tell me about that. You're 50. You know, I'm almost 50. It's a, it's a big, you know, 
I was 50. I was getting divorced. I've been married for almost 30 years. And I was without a job because the oil company had been sold. So not a good moment. So what do you... So tell me, what, what, you know, you're going out to lunch with friends, you're brainstorming. How did, how I didn't you? know what to do. I was so befuddled by it all. And, and the divorce part was obviously just so painful and it was so sad and it was, it was all my fault. And I mean, I can tell the, the listeners here, I had a drinking problem and uh, it, it, it wasn't getting any better uh, in 1994. And eventually... Uh, we got divorced, and uh, I was staying with some friends. And one of the and the friend, the male friend, was a very famous art dealer. And he said, "Why don't you go interview at Christie's and Sotheby's? They could use you." Yeah. And so I tootled on down and interviewed at both places, and they both offered me a job. And I went to work for Sotheby's because I knew Alfred Taubin, who was the chairman, and I knew Dee Dee Brooks, who was the chief executive officer. And I went to work there, and that sort of was wonderful, and I eventually became chairman of the Americas for Sotheby's, and I started becoming an auctioneer, which I really liked. Yeah, tell doing. me about that. So you, I, I fancied myself as yeah. being an auctioneer. Uh, of course, I was told, "Forget it; you'll never have a chance," uh, because the people here are younger than you, and they've been doing it for twenty years. You have no chance to be an auctioneer. We have too many people that want to yeah. be. I, I didn't take that as as a, as a no. But you see, I, I grew up. I grew up in Hollywood, and and let me tell you something. If you want to be on Broadway, you've got to go to the Borscht Belt, right? Yep. So I went to the Borscht Belt. I went and did charity auctions all over America for Sotheby's, but no one wanted to do them. I'd go, and I wasn't very good, and I got things thrown at me. And well, by the way, you're also dealing with a tough audience. I feel like oh, yeah. charity auctions because oh. people are. I mean, oh, we didn't have phones back then. People are staring at their phones, but they're brutal. looking down. They're excusing themselves to go to the bathroom. Nobody, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was very, very difficult, but it was the only way I was going to get a chance. I knew that. If I, could, if I could deal with charity auctions, I could deal with regular auctions. Regular auctions are a piece of cake compared to a charity auction. Charity auctions are really hard because people are not coming there because they want to buy anything. Yeah. That's for starters. And they talk to each other. That's, that's another thing, something else. And if they drink too much, they talk to each other a lot. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. Talk to you. Yeah. So it's a very it's a very hard and uh, but anyway I I persevered and, and that led me to do other auctions and were you thinking though on the was it just something that you'd always been interested in doing or did you was it a challenge when they said you're you're not going to be good at it you're you know and then you thought I thought I could what, do it yeah I thought I could do it. I think the actor gene came in yeah play, yeah yeah I think yeah I remember I had to make a big decision I I went down to do a gay men's health crisis auction in Philadelphia where it was six hundred uh, gay men and. I was to sell some local art work that was done by local artists in Philadelphia and to get these guys to buy these things. Yeah. And it was not going well. And the, the, the young men bringing out the auction, the, 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 the paintings were all really cute and had tight blue jeans. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You can imagine, just like the fights in Vegas, same idea. <laughs> and about halfway through it, a guy stood up, and he was an enormous guy. He said, hey, Mr. Auctioneer, you're the cutest little auctioneer I've ever seen. I'm looking at him dead silence and he says you know what I like to do I like to come up to that stage I like to kiss you am I allowed to tell this story yeah yeah yeah, yeah I like yeah, to kiss you <laughs> and then I like to turn you around I'll take your pants off and fuck you and so what, which I mean now this is a moment in time you're gonna you're gonna deal with this or you're never gonna deal with it you're never gonna do this again it's up to you this is your moment you gotta make a decision here I said all right you can come up and kiss I me. was gonna say you leaned in 
I said, you can come up and kiss me, but no fucking. <laughs> and of course, everybody laughed. And he sat down and the painting sold like wildfire. And then I'm leaving at the, at the end of this now successful evening. I'm leaving and he's standing there and he gives me a big hug and he says, you are the straightest guy we've seen in years. <laughs> they sent you, a straight guy, to this audience. That was funny for all of us. And the fact of the matter is we knew you were, you were straight and it was just extraordinary that you came back so fast with that line. And and I didn't want to tell him that I, I came from a Hollywood gene yeah, pool. Yeah. I had him. My old man was streaked on national television years ago. Anyway, he was uh, streaked, and he also he was also you know a, a king of the one the yeah. one liner and the anyway. You know. So as a result, I ended up doing about seven hundred and fifty charity auctions, and I raised a whole lot of money for charities around America. You've raised, I would probably guess, guesstimate. Plus. Yeah, hundreds of millions oh, of yeah. dollars. Oh, yeah. Oh, 750 plus of the 750 auctions, yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you think is – I have my own opinion about the secret to your success. Mm. Um, but, but tell me, what, you, what do you think it is? I don't know. I, I had this attitude that – I developed this attitude that I would always talk to the audience first. I wouldn't come out there and try and say, lot number one, uh, trip to Rome. Yep. I wouldn't do that. I'd come out and talk. And I, I learned this at Robin Hood. Robin Hood being in, in New York, the, the sort of number one fundraiser event every year. Uh, and they'll raise 100 million plus in a given evening. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. And I did the auctions for Robin Hood 20 times out of 30. Did a lot. And, I, and you're facing 4,500 people, masters of the universe, and they've seen all kinds of entertainment. They've had all kinds of videos shown. They've had all kinds of great people speak. And now you're up. And you've got to do something. You've got to be able to raise money from this group of people. You're, it's on your shoulders. And I would talk about what Robin Hood meant to me, how it helped fight poverty in the five boroughs and some of the things they did for schools. And I would try and get the attention of that audience, not ram it down their throat, but get the attention and get them to realize how serious it is, how important they can make a difference and change what's going on in people's lives that are less fortunate than them. And I would do that. And then I would go and do the paddle raise or whatever the yeah. auction I was doing. And I took that, because it worked at Robin Hood, that I would then do that every time I took an auction. Yeah. And I did, until I stopped doing them about a year ago. You stopped doing them about a year ago? Well, I can't see as well as I used to. So okay. I, I, I can't read down and look deep and all that yeah. stuff. And also, I decided that people had enough of me, and I, and I think it was time. That's I, d I don't agree with that by 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 a long shot. I mean, I'll do it for the girls. I mean, I, yeah. I have to do it for Eugenie and for Rhonda, and, yeah. and I do it for the Jamie Niven Cup and Casa de Campo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, that's, that's, a, that's an abuse. I don't do them anymore. I, I, well, you see, once you quit, you can't cherry pick. You're out. You're in or you're out. Yeah. You can't say, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones, I won't do yours, but I'll do yours. Yeah. That doesn't work. Can't do it. Well, I think just the way, as you said, you 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 you're able to you know connect with the audience and and really um, maybe you do you know your your humor and by the way you, in many cases you know half the people that are sitting in the audience yeah, which or is not. or or not it doesn't or not really matter to me actually. it doesn't but yeah. you but you have a connect um, yeah well, I mean just, I, just by you know who you are and and how personable you are and and warm you are and funny you are it it um, People want to give you money. Well, I, and I care about the institution that I'm representing. Yeah. And I, as I told you, I think I, I feel like when I stand up there, I represent that institution yeah. that night. And it's important that I'm part of them. I mean, it, look, it's so many different things you throw into the hopper. But I just, you know, I just found myself doing it and feeling good about it. And 
I always try to think when I left that room, did I leave any money in the room? Yeah. And if I didn't leave any money in the room, I felt good. And if I did leave money in the room, which happened a lot, I felt terrible. But I kept trying. And uh, I tried so many different times with so many different organizations. But look, in the end, uh, you can do it for so long. And I think you have to step back and get on. Yeah, but what a, I mean, what a legacy, truly. Because, you know, any of us who've been, you know, at charity events where, with all due respect to other people who do auctions, there is no one who's who's better than you. There really isn't. Oh, thank you. Um, so what an impact. But tell me, like, what... I, I think I one of the the um, interviews that I saw you were talking about one of the the lots was a like a Navy SEAL training. Any other mm. crazy like craziest lot or craziest well that that's, auction moment? Yeah, you know, that was the um, there's a wonderful organization called the um, Navy SEAL Foundation, and it raises money uniquely to support families of SEALs that have been killed in action or in training. And and I emphasize they do lose people yeah. in training. And every year, a certain number of men are killed, and it's sometimes it's 10 and sometimes it's 20. And there's a, a major event, 2,000 people come. Uh, and what you're asked to sell, what I was asked to sell, was the opportunity to participate in a training program, either air, land, or sea, each being a separate issue. And if you win, you would go out to Coronado, California, and then you would be trained by, I think, ex-SEALs, although I couldn't say yeah. that, uh, on jumping out of helicopter or jumping out of a, with a parachute or swimming underwater or riding in a Range Rover or, or whatever it was yeah, yeah. that, that you, you emulated for, for four or five days what it would like to be a SEAL. And, it, and, you, and you would sell these things for a great deal of money. And you had to be very, very careful how you purported yourself in these things, because number one, it is a night remembering people that have been killed. Yeah. You have women there with corsages, either the mother, oh. the, the daughter, or the, not the daughter, but the mother or the wife, wife or the girlfriend or the sister. So they're all there, and you have to be careful what you say. And then, and the admiral who's in charge is one of these guys who doesn't doesn't fuck around. And he, he I always sit next to him, and, and I was watching him as I was selling the first lot, which is the air part. And it was purchased by a woman who was wearing a short red skirt. I'll never forget it. And she was sort of bidding in the back of the room, and I sold it to her. And I, and I decided I would just add a little bit of humor yeah. to this. And I said, the great thing is that the young lady that just pu purchased this, wearing a very short red skirt, I might add, <laughs> had told me if she won, she was going to jump out of the, of the helicopter feet first. And, of course, all the men laughed, and they went, whoa, whoa, and make that noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the and the admiral's looking yeah. at me and went, steady. <laughs> steady jamie that is uh okay um so um that was that was always the most amazing night i mean it really the so did they they did they offer that lot every every year mm -hmm. was it, yeah yeah and they gave me a navy seal paddle which i cherish oh amazing yeah i really cared about uh, doing it for those men and made a difference and i i hope i made a difference lord knows i uh, I worked. I worked that room. And there was there were people there with money. There was a lot of Navy people, but yeah. there, there were people from Wall Street there, and you knew where they were, and you yeah. pointed at them, and you know you did okay. And those kinds of you know those are experiences that people can't have access to on their own. No. So no. you know the fact that they were offering that, and you know, 
I'm sure it was. I, I mean, it was always an, a, a very emotional night. I, I think of it more than all the others other than Robin Hood, um, how emotional it was to work on that kind of fundraising and whatever. The last time I did it, uh, General Mathis was being honored and oh. he was going to speak. And he was, a mil- he was a Marine general, obviously. And he was in charge of all the armed forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. And General Mathis was not a guy you, you fooled yeah. around with him, and he was a pretty serious chap. And my lady friend and I, Beatrice, went to the wrong hotel where this evening was to take place because it was always at the Hilton, and they changed it to Crown Plaza. Yeah. And so we got there a little bit late, and, we, and they were going in for dinner. And so we took our overcoats and shoved them underneath the table, and I was seated next to General Mathis. And he said to me, oh, he said, how nice to meet you. He said, weren't you supposed to be here earlier? And I said, yes, I was, but made a boo-boo on the hotel. Mumbling at him, you know. <laughs> Did so he say it like he, a real he, Marine general? He, or he, said, it, he said, no, yeah. but really, really what happened? Uh, and I said, well, uh, uh, General, I uh, went to the wrong hotel. Oh, Jesus. Anyway. I did my shtick, and yeah, he yeah, followed, yeah. and he was very funny about me, and he said, it's nice to see Jamie here. I'm glad he got here. <laughs> and um, anyway, time to leave, and I'm getting our coats, and he, t- he says to me, Jamie, yeah, do you want me to send a couple of seals to make sure you get home? Okay. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> this is the first and only time I met General yeah, yeah. But, um That's incredible, though. That's incredible. I mean, I think to... Um, be able to have that kind of impact for that that kind of an important um, important cause. And, it mattered. And to, yeah. You know, that's what it is, you see. And a, a lot of people don't understand that, but, but it did matter. Yeah. It mattered you could do it, and it mattered that you could be helpful, and it mattered that you felt you were part of that organization that night so that you came across not as some dickhead auctioneer, but you came across as someone who was really part of the deal. Yeah. I think it's important. I don't know. I mean, time will tell. I mean, it just depends. Yeah. Tell me, so you so you had all the, those experiences with the charity initially when you were yeah. trying to get, and then you you go back to you know you go back to your your day job, your, your, you know your sure. your you know this is yeah. the auctioneering charity yeah. stuff was your side hustle, right? You were yeah. doing that. I mean, not for money, no, no, but no, you were never doing for that money. For, unlike but, unlike but for, other people, no, I never. Got but that. Um, but for you know you were doing that and you were getting that exposure, and then you go back to Sotheby's, and how did you parlay that into? Doing auctions for them. Well, I learned to be an auctioneer by virtue of taking those charity auctions. And so I ended up doing a lot of auctions at Sotheby's. I never did the, the two big night sales because that was done by a person who had been there and was very, very good at what he did. I've been doing it for 20 years before I got there. Okay. But I did a lot of single owner sales. I mean, I did, uh, gosh, I did so many. But one of them I remember most is the, the estate of Johnny Cash. And, Amazing. and I really loved that. And his daughter was there and we talked and I sold the handwritten note of I Walked the Line. So when he composed the lyrics for I Walked the Line, he wrote it on a piece of white paper. And I sold that piece of white paper for God knows how much money. And what surprised me was the people who came probably never would come back, but they came to buy a piece of Johnny yeah. Cash. It was important yeah. to them. And so I took my time selling it. And we sold everything, every piece of furniture, every piece of silver, all the gold records, the platinum records, whatever it was, we sold. And I was so happy at the end of it, and she was so nice. His daughter, daughter was so nice. And I wish I would see her again and, and give her a hug because it was it was really, really emotional. You know? We were down in Nashville um, a couple of weeks ago and went to the Johnny Cash Museum. Yeah. 
And, you know, I know a little bit about Johnny Cash from, you know, the movie Walk the Line, yeah. right? And I know some of his hits. Mm. My husband has in like his gym, I did this for Father's Day, he's got a one of the a poster of Johnny Cash giving the finger when he's at yeah. San, I think it's San Quentin or whenever he he's is, doing yeah. the, the 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 concert. Folsom Folsom um, Folsom Prison, that's exact. And he he I couldn't get over how packed this is like on a Tuesday yeah. in Nashville. Yeah. This museum was. Yeah. And what a huge following he yeah. has. Yeah. Oh sure. Um yeah. Full of people I never saw my whole life. I mean I I like doing those. I did a I did a bunch of those single owner sales they're called. Yeah. Uh, and I guess of all of them, Johnny Cash was one. The, we, we did a baseball memorabilia auction, um, which was about 16 different sales. Um, so many baseballs and mitts and yeah. God knows what else. And the hero of of the collection and of baseball in New York City was Mickey Mantle. It wasn't Babe Ruth. It wasn't Ty Cobb. It wasn't any of those people. It wasn't Joe DiMaggio. It was the Mick. Yeah. And the people that showed up for this auction were extraordinary. They were usually fat, sort of 50-year-old white men with silly jerseys that had 69 on them and stuff like that, you know. (laughs) Anyway, I took three of the 16 sessions, and and one of the sessions I took uh, involved selling his mitt, and it was an MM4, which I had as a kid when I lived in California. I had a Mickey Mantle MM4. Oh, stop it. So this was the this was his Met. MM4, okay. Yeah. And I got to sell it, and uh, it was it was extraordinary because we started the auction at five thousand dollars, and within two seconds it got to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. These guys were very unsophisticated bidders. They took it from five hundred or five thousand dollars to fifty thousand to hundred. That was was sixty nine with the sixty nine group. Were they bidding? Oh yeah, they were all collectors of baseball okay. memorabilia and the Mick. Okay. Let's hear it for the Mick. They must have said 3,000 times. It's a very unruly audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sell this goddamn I love that, though. That's, you know, sell the Met. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I looked down at my colleague who'd been bidding on the phone and I said, the paddle number, because you have to ask the paddle number. You write it down. And he goes like this. He puts his arms out like, I don't know the paddle number. Now, you can't do that. I mean, you have to have a paddle number if you're bidding. And he's looking at me like, doesn't know what to do. Because 69 didn't register or the guy on the phone didn't have a paddle? The guy, my guy did not have yeah. a paddle. And he's looking at me with his arms open like this. And with that, one of the windows of the sky boxes opens up. It's Billy Crystal. And he's got Stop the paddle. It. Stop it. And he yells out, Mr. Auctioneer, this any good? And I said, sold the paddle of 684. Thank you very Amazing. much. Amazing. The place went crazy. I had to say, we'll take a five-minute break here. We'll take a five-minute break. I couldn't control the crowd. They just went bananas. That is awesome. Oh, my God. It was so, it was such a, a great moment. And I remember that, it's just interesting that in the very, very beginning, I would try and take these sales, and, you know, they'd give you the worst sale. And there was a sale. Of, when you were starting out, yeah, yeah. There was a sale of the estate of Leonard Bernstein. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure as hell I'm the only one there who knew Leonard Bernstein, okay? Knew being defined as I went to his apartment a few times with, you know, rather left-wing crazy people, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so the last session of the day, people came. They wanted a piece of Leonard Bernstein. So they wanted his jacket. He wore in Tanglewood. He wanted the baton he used in Tanglewood. And he wanted this, the platinum record for West Side Story or whatever it was. Yeah, I was yeah. selling all that stuff. And a woman got so carried away that she put her hand in the air and the paddle flew out of her hand and went about five rows Stop in it. front. 
this is my early days, right? Yeah. So I said, ladies and gentlemen, just hold on one second. I went down, I picked the paddle up, I took it and gave it to her. I said, now, madam, take your time. Don't worry. I'll look at you until this is over. And I just thought, you know, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. And it was The Estate of Leonard Bernstein. And now I'm going to go and see that movie. I haven't seen it. I was going to say Maestro. Yeah. It's supposed to be good. I mean, Bradley Cooper is supposed to be good. I'm here. It's just fantastic. That's interesting that that was not a, I would think that would have been a huge auction. You were saying well, that... It, weren't that many um, valuable pieces. It okay. wasn't like the big paintings okay. or anything. This is all... Oh, so awesome. it wasn't about this, the person. It was about what was up for auction. That was, yeah, the furniture, the glasses, yeah. or uh, jacket, or the baton. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. Or music sheets that he wrote, or he wrote a beautiful... Uh, I don't think... It was, maybe it was an opera called Candide. And, you know, people bid for that sort of stuff. It's, it's collectibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you... You're doing auctions at Sotheby's. You go from vice chairman or working at Sotheby's yeah. vice chairman to chairman. Yeah. And you are involved with Sloan Kettering. You're involved with the MoMA. And today you're very involved with um, the partnership to end addiction. Correct. Sorry, correct. Tell, it, tell us about that. All right. So today I, I sit on the board of Memorial, uh, which is 45 years, of MoMA, which is 35 years. Uh, I sit on Bloomberg Philanthropies, which is... I've been on the board there for five years, which is a pretty extraordinary yeah. um, not-for-profit organization. It's how does that is that a so does the board get to decide how the money is al- yeah. allocated? Well, they make a presentation. I mean, it's okay, a huge staff. They're, they're staff, and it's then an and then you all vote on whatever the we vote on the yeah. on the on the whole deal. Is the is their annual budget public? A public. Yes, I think yeah, it, it has to be right. It's got yeah, a form nine ninety as a not for exactly, profit. Yeah. yeah. So how much generally? How much money a year does that? I would think it. Two and a half to three. Yeah. More than any other institution in America, except for the Melinda yeah. Bill Gates Foundation. Wow, that's incredible. And it, do they have any? Is their mission targeted towards one? Yes, one five things. Okay. What are their five? What are their five things? I'm chewing a mint. Yeah. In case it sounds loud. Um, education. Okay. The arts, world health, government innovation, and the environment. Okay. That's it. And world health, is there any particular, is it? Totally. Vaccines? It has to do with everything. It has to do with not smoking. Okay. Big not smoking. uh, Big uh, efforts to curb emissions from coal-burning power plants. Um, Vaccination programs around the world. Uh, it's it's all over the place, but there's really talented people that run these five yeah. definitive different groups. And then Michael has his own desire to help Johns Hopkins in a meaningful way. I was going to ask if part of their part of that that big he made a transformative gift to Johns Hopkins was has that, made yes and continues and continues to yeah. yeah. But that big the big one that was announced was it it was yeah that, that was that through the. Everything that Michael, everything Michael gives away goes through the foundation. Yeah. So if he decides to give a grant of a billion dollars, let's say right. to Johns Hopkins, it comes through the foundation. And then so, so you're very involved with that, which is, by the way, fascinating and such such important. Work. To me, that and, is is unbelievably interesting. And and uh, and the board is twenty. It's two are his daughters, and uh, it's a joy to be involved with them and to listen to what they're all saying and what they're positioning themselves. You get. To, they have interesting speakers that come and talk to us. I mean, it's really quite, it's quite amazing. But the you're thing probably that, also getting access 
to or learning about some of the greatest not-for-profit organizations, I would think, on the globe, right? Important work that's happening. Right, where, you know, where they partner with them. Right. To save the coral reefs or right. ocean, ocean, save the oceans is a big part of our, our thing. But charter schools is a huge part, a yeah. huge component. I mean, they, we pledged $750 million the other day for supporting charter, charter wow. schools in the United States. So how, how does, so you, you're... So the partnership to end addiction yeah. is, is the one that I spend a lot of time on. I'm chairman of it. I spend really a lot of time. I, uh, I talk to the fellow who runs it. It was called Creighton Dury. I talk to him every day. Um, I help change the board in terms of bringing on new right. people. I help with the fundraising in a big way. Um, I generally, I generally really am involved in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. And I got involved because uh, I was having lunch with the founder, a man called Joe Califano, who had led the charge in America to stop people smoking. And also he led the charge to how to bring up a drug-free kid. And he had spent a lot of his time and effort writing books about this very issue. And um, after he got to a certain, certain age, he decided that he was going to step back and uh, I was having lunch with him just to, f to listen to what he was doing. Right. And I asked him if he had anyone on the board that went to meetings. And he said, everyone on the board goes to the meetings. I said, no, 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 Joe, goes to meetings. Right. Like, as, the, like themselves AA. in recovery. Like yeah. AA. And he said, oh, I don't think so. I don't think I know anyone that goes to AA meetings. I said, you do, actually. And he said, oh, who's that? I said, it's me. And so... He invited me to go on the board, and I did. And ultimately, I became chairman of it. And how long have you? How long have you been involved with? I've been involved with them for about ten years, but I've been chairman for about four. And is the the focus of the organization is it education based? Is so it, is it supporting for the, the partnership to end addiction is a combination of a joint venture that was called the Center on Alcohol and Substance Abuse, which was Joe Califano's, and an organization called Partnership for Drug Free Kids, which right. is a guy called Jim Burke. Uh, Jim Burke had run Johnson & Johnson. And we merged the two entities together about three years ago. And so our focus is to help families deal with uh, addiction. A lot of that today is the opioid right. addiction issue. The numbers are fairly scary. 100,000 people will die of uh, opioid overdose this year. At least 100,000 will die of alcohol overdose. And somewhere on the vicinity that, of that is yeah, fascinating. I never, 40, 40 million Americans have some form of addiction yeah. or another. And what we try and do through three different ways is to help families deal with this issue. Issue is defined as mother, mother finds drug paraphernalia in a kid's drawer. Research, which we've been doing now for 30 years, shows that if you can stop a kid taking drugs in his teenagers, the odds of them becoming drug addicts and they get older is very small. If you don't, the odds of them becoming drug addicts is very high. So you have to attack this thing as families and help families have the tools to deal with this. So we do it in three ways. One, we have a website which about 2 million people came on last year. Wow. And we give them the tools to what they have to do to help themselves and their family. They're often... I think families that don't have enough money probably to pay for rehab, as an example. Which, by the way, is a big problem. I know oh, yeah. I was talking about our, our community, and you know I'm a, 
an elected official. And they, yep. um, no, one of the things that people scary. do do is they want, it is very scary. They do want to, they would rather have their kid get arrested sometimes so that they yep. actually can get care by then going into the, the system, um, which is really unfair. I mean, it's really. Yeah, it's, 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 but a lot of this is going to change, I hope. Okay. So the next thing is how we handle, we have, um, been approached by municipalities and states about giving them advice how to take the opioid settlement dollars that are coming to them and use them to help the families that are in their communities. And we're going to be doing a lot of that work, and we do it now. And the third thing is we had 22,000 families last year that we spoke directly to on the phone, helping them navigate the process of getting their kids uh, into, uh, into any form of therapy they can. Uh, we we usually, not always, but of the 500 people that work with us in that area, many of them are mothers that have lost a kid or two. Yeah. And they're the ones that deal with these oh. families and talk them through the process. And, you know, we know that in Des Moines there's a very good rehab over here. There's a, AA meetings are in the Baptist church over there. I mean, we do everything we can to help those families. And that's that's what we do as the partnership to end addiction. That's That's our focus. Families... Direct, indirect, and the states. That's where we are today. That's what we fundamentally deal with. That is so important because when you are overwhelmed by the the prospect of trying to help your family member or friend heal and seek recovery, and I've I've been you know in the periphery of those that process before, you don't know you know what what the first step is or what's the best program or what's nearby. So having those having those resources available is really critical to getting, getting those, those people help and having the, the moms who have lost children, it must be very cathartic for them. I I would think in being able to help others. Um, well, I think that's exactly right. And I think that what, what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to double the size of the endowment so we can have more money to do more of these things. Um, I'm slowly but surely adding more people to the board. In many cases, people who've got a skin in the game by virtue they've had a tragedy right. in their life, usually over drugs. And um, so that's my sort of my goal the next three years to stay on this and do everything I can to to achieve what I hope will be a great help to uh, to people out there. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, I. Um, I go to AA meetings. I haven't had a drink in 13 and a half years, but I drank for 50 years. Um, I regret it terribly, but there's nothing you can do about it. One thing you do learn in this, you have to learn a lot of humility. It's really hard the first time you go to an AA meeting, I can tell you, really hard. And um, Is it beca- because of just having to the, the, sh- the, sh- the sharing part or the... The whole deal. The fact that you're desperate, the fact that you're so unhappy with yourself, the fact that you're embarrassed, the fact that you're so humiliating. You don't realize how important it is when you sit down. All those people have been through this. Yeah. And they're there to help you. I mean, once you learn that, you realize what, a, what an extraordinary organization AA is. Um, and you find them all over the world. I mean, I've been to a meeting in Buenos Aires. I've been to a... I have been in Paris when I go quite a lot this English church, I'd go there. And I um, am always so impressed by by the availability of uh, there's, and you're going to know the name of it, but it's I've seen it on schedules for at school reunions, 
it also meeting with um, what's the there's a code. It's like meeting with John Doe. That's not the name, but there's a name, and that is a code that there is an AA meeting oh. available. Um, friend of Bill. Friend of Bill. There yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Friend of Bill. Yeah. yeah. Well, friend of Bill is important. And the first time someone asks you if you're a friend of Bill, you look at him and say, I didn't like Bill Clinton that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in a restaurant down, in, uh, which I loved, um, down at the end of Lexington Avenue. It was a great Danny Meyer restaurant. Maiorena was called. Maiolino. And I sit down, and this is early on. I've been to three AA meetings in my life, and I'm struggling like crazy. And so I ordered a, uh, a virgin uh, yeah. Mai Tai. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the girl brings me a virgin Mai Tai, and I hoover it in about two yeah. seconds, right? And I said, before, before she could leave the table, I had, had it. I said, would you bring me another one, please? She comes back, and she puts it down. She says, are you a friend of Bill? Yeah. I said, no, I didn't like Bill Clinton. <laughs> she says, I'm not talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about Bill. I'm looking at her like, what the fuck she's talking yeah. about? She says, AA. Oh, yeah, sure, Bill. Oh, yes. I, oh, I'm a friend of Bill. Thank you very much. <laughs> Aren't you a little young? She said, I'm young, but I go there. That's so, so what, for people that are listening that yeah. themselves, and I think, you know, they're, people are sort of struggling themselves with yeah. alcohol or substance abuse and wondering, you know, um, whether or not they should seek help or sort of are, experiencing some of the things yeah. you talked about, being embarrassed by it, yeah. trying to sort through it, what kind of advice would you would you give them? The greatest advice I ever got about this whole issue was when I decided I needed to make a change. I needed to do something about this, this horrible situation I found myself in. Uh, I called up a friend of mine uh, who I knew had, had dealt with this when he was younger. Uh, let's call him Jimmy. He, he is called Jimmy. And I called him up, and he lived near me, and I said, I need to talk to you. And he came over in about two minutes, and he walked in, and we sat down outside. We played a lot of golf together. And he said, partner, why do I feel that today we're not talking about golf? Yeah. I said, I explained to him. He said, good. He said, well, let me help you. This is what you got to do. You got to um, don't have another drink and go to meetings. That's what you got to do. And for the next 90 days, I'll call you or I'll text you or I'll email you. Just check in, see how you're doing. But you got to go. Try and go every day if you can. But at least go once every other day. Did he go with you? Or did you no. have someone? You, you went by yourself. I happened to have been by myself, you know. I did go with several people later on, uh, particularly in sort of phase two, like after the first five weeks. I went with a guy a couple of times. That was very helpful. He said, the next thing is, that when you get up in the morning and you're shaving, there's going to be a guy standing behind you. Uh, he's better looking than you. He's better dressed than you. He's, he's smarter than you. Um, and um, he wants you back. He's called Mr. Alcohol. And what you're going to wow. say to Mr. Alcohol is not today. Don't say about tomorrow. Just say not today, Mr. Alcohol. That's one thing. He said, the second thing is that when you go out at night, you're a 10. No question about it. You're funny. Everyone loves you. My wife loves you, which really pisses me off. You're a nightmare. And when you go home that night, when you go home that night, you think you're still a 10, but you're not. You're a 1. And when you get to zero, it's going to be hard to help you. That's, that's, that's what you got to deal with. So there you are, partner. Um, call you. Yeah. And not only have you not looked back, but you've taken this... <laughs> I've helped other people. I've helped, helped other people, people go, but I've never, never 
impose myself on people because I don't think that's the way you do it and that doesn't ever work. People have to come to you and say, what do I do? Then you can help them. You can take them with you to a meeting. They don't have to say anything. Yeah. You sit there. Yeah. Um, so remember that you're not a 10-year-old one. And remember that it's only about today. It's not about tomorrow. And go to meetings and listen to all these people talk about what they've been through. I mean, you know, some of these people have been sober for 40 years in these meetings. Some, some relapsed and have just come back yesterday. It doesn't matter as long as you're all there. And if you're ever worried about finding a meeting, let me tell you something. In New York City, there must be a yeah. million of them. There's a lot of friends of Bill. You go, you go, yeah. on, you go online and you can get by the hour. If I could find one in Buenos Aires, yeah, and I could find one in Paris, I can assure you. How is the language barrier on that? It's in English. Oh, it is. The one in Buenos, you, you can go anywhere you want in the world where you don't speak the language, and you sit there in an AA meeting. It's fine because you know what wow. they're talking about. Yeah, you're just part of the yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's just, it's basically, I would, I would think you're, you're better off if it is. Yeah, having yeah. that, just having that touchstone, right, yeah. and being with others and understanding you're taking time out to yeah. pause and recognize. I, I went to, uh, I found one in Buenos Aires and, and I used to stay in this wonderful hotel called the Alvear Palace, which I recommend yeah, yeah. highly. It's one of those great hotels where the, the employees dress a lot better than the guests. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I used to always give a hundred dollars to the concierge when I went there and in case I needed him and I never yeah. needed him. And so one day I decided I need to go to a meeting. So I went downstairs to meet one, and the, and the other concierge was dealing with a family of Americans that were dressed in a most horrible way. <laughs> I mean, you've never seen such ugly things. And I won't even tell you some of the, what the slogans on the sweater was, but one of the girls had an arrow pointing down and said, slippery when wet. I mean, stop it. I mean, so it. stop it, right? <laughs> so I'm, I now look at Juan. I said, Juan, I need you to find me an AA meeting. AA meeting? I said, yeah. He said, how do you know we have AA meetings here? I said, it's really simple. You're 28 million strong. You drink enormous amounts yeah. of Malbec and God knows how much brandy. <laughs> You're going to have so many meetings, not even funny. And I tell you what you do. Get on the phone and, 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 and you'll find that, ah, uh, in Espanol, ah, por favor. And he says, I can speak, uh, I can uh, speak uh, Spanish. Uh, amigo de Bill, I mean. I mean, <laughs> call me. I turn, I, I look at all these people all looking at me like I'm garbage, you know, I'm going to go to, I'm AA yeah. kind of thing. And the girl with the funny looking sign, I said, you would particularly have a good day, I said. <laughs> I go to my room and the phone rings right away and, and he says, I found eight. Wow. He, I said, uh, he said, as you can appreciate, Senor Niven, these things start around 11 o'clock at night because, yeah. you know, we don't eat dinner yeah. at 12. <laughs> and so he found me one that was in English in the church, which they often are in churches or downstairs usually, and... Uh, there were 40 people there where English was our common language. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was riveting. I mean, it, it, it is all over the place. I mean, it's, and that's the thing. There's a world out there that can help you. Yeah. You just have to get yourself into that meeting. You have to walk in that door. People, people will ask you, this is the first time you've been there. They'll give you books you can read, on, read about it, and they'll, they'll volunteer to be your sponsor. I mean, it's, it's a really yeah. good... It's a community. It's a amazing. Global community, yeah. And what does it cost you? It costs you $2. You don't have to put anything in the pot, but they ask for $2. So, pivoting a bit. Yes, pivot. Um, you were on The Apprentice. Uh, I don't want to spend, you know, too much time talking about the Donald, but I did want to ask about how that experience was. How did that go down? Yeah. Um, well, it was it was it was one of those things. I mean, this is now 
when The Apprentice is being shot for the first season, okay, so it hadn't reached television yet. So the concept was that they have those two teams, what they had in those days, and the teams would go out and get things that could be sold at auction for charity, and that whatever team won uh, would not lose a member of the team, and the team that lost, one of them would get fired. That's how, that's how the system was, okay? So someone suggested, because I was now the the head man for charity auctions, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Would I do it? And I said I didn't want to do it. I didn't like the idea of it. It didn't sit well with me because, first of all, you got to have people in the audience that are going to buy these things, and if you don't pack it with enough people who could afford it, it doesn't really work. And I'm a little worried that this thing is not going to be that great, and I'm, whether Sotheby's should be involved with it or not, I don't know. But anyway, they prevailed upon me, and they, you know, in the end, they asked me. So I said, okay. So uh, I went to visit both groups, <laughs> and the first group I went into, they were all these tough people, and uh, I said, hi, I'm your auctioneer tonight. I hope to do you proud, and thank you so much for working so hard yeah. getting these things to sell. And a guy was lying on the floor, you know, looking at me, his back against the wall, and he said, so how much do you think this thing will go for? And he mentioned whatever it was. I said $5,000. And he said, it went for 250000 at Robin Hood two nights ago. I said, I'm well aware of that. It did go for 250000 but that's at Robin Hood, not here. Yeah. He did said, he explain why he was on the floor with his back up against the wall? He just was being yeah. Anyway, so he looked at me and he said, anyway, how would you know? I said, look, I just talked to the guy that did the auction. And he told me 5000 is probably the right number. Forget the 250000 He said, when did you talk to the guy? I said, just right now. Yeah. And he's looking at me and I said, you're not getting it, are you? <laughs> All right. I said, guy, yeah. I'm telling you, this is not going to be big dollars. This is not a big dollar deal tonight. So let's just make sure we're all happy. And I go and meet the next group. The next group was rather nicer. They said, well, thank you so much for doing this. And anyway. Uh, now, is the Donald, is it, are you He's in sitting the, in the audience. He's in the audience. He's not, it's not like the boardroom. I, I didn't no, watch it that what much. He, what he is doing is he's sitting there and then they shoot, they just go somewhere and shoot the fact that he fires one of them. Okay. Whether it was in one of our conference rooms or not, I don't remember. All I did was the auction. He did ask me if I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever done in my life being on his show, and I confided in him that it was. And, um, but I, I uh, yeah, that was, that was The Apprentice. And uh, I know that the next morning after the thing was aired, I, Imus in the morning said, I watched The Apprentice last night, the only guy that was any goddamn good was that auctioneer. <laughs> <laughs> I must in the morning. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so that was that was the that was the Donald effort on my part. He, um, yeah, that was quite something. And then you also, you were did stand up at Caroline's. Mm-hmm, I did. Was that like a one night only? I don't know yes. why I didn't know. I your daughters did not tell me about this. I, I would have joined them. I didn't tell them. them. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I went there, I, uh, the Caroline herself, okay, I okay. got to know her a little bit, and she, and, and, and she was laughing at me about something, and the next thing I know, I get a call from a guy who, who held himself out as the, the funniest CEO in America. And this is a guy that liked to get groups together to do stand-up comedy at Caroline's, particularly Thursday night, where you have three amateurs and you have three pros, okay? And that's the, that's the concept. And so... I thought it was a terrible idea, and then I changed my mind and decided I'd do it. So I pitch up early at Caroline's. It's a long bar, right? And um, I'm standing there, 
not thinking about it too much. And a rather elderly lady comes in and she orders a, um, what are those pink drinks? Um, Cosmo? Cosmo. She orders a Cosmo. And she has the Cosmo in front of me. And I'm looking at her. I said, you come here often? She said, I always come on Thursday nights. I said, why is that? She said, well, it's first come, first served. And I'm here early. And I get a nice seat. And I order dinner. And then I watch the amateurs make fools of themselves. Yeah. I said, I'll have a glass of white wine, please. <laughs> so I had a glass of white wine. And, I, and, and she disappears into the bowels of this thing. It was really scary because you're, you're in a void. Um, it's the one person that... Didn't you have some plants? You didn't have any plants? Wait, you didn't tell any the, friends? No, but you have... The problem is the lights are all in your face and you can't see anything. You can't see anyone in the audience. You're talking onto a black pit. It's not like a regular auction where the lights are on all the people. You can see them. You don't have to be seen doing an auction. So you all you... It. The only feedback you're getting then is whatever sound, you're hearing. Yeah. Sound. It's a little scary. Anyway... So I looked down. So what'd you think? Well, I went down to the end of the other end of the bar. There were two ladies there who were really attractive, sort of in their early forties, with sixteen-year-olds, kind of natty. Kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, "Hi, everybody, hi." And uh, I said, "You come here often." What we do? We come on Thursday night because that's the night our husbands play poker. I thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we're all here, and we're looking forward to tonight. I said, "Great." And one of the little bratty girls says, "Yeah." And tonight, there's a guy who's here whose father was a famous movie star, and he's going to be uh, an amateur, and, and we're, we're going to boo him. Uh, I'll have another glass of white wine, please, I said. So I had another glass of white wine, and I said, well, what would make you not boo this man yeah, yeah. if I happen to know him? And said, Well, when, you, when he comes out on the stage, we always sit to the left, and you'll say, hi, girls, and we'll all say, hi, Jamie. <laughs> I said, well, that sounds like a very good plan. Let me see if I can't get that worked out. Great. And with that, one of the mothers puts her phone number in my jacket. Seriously. Stop it. I'm thinking, this is going to be the greatest <laughs> night of my life. Anyway, so eventually, you know, it's six of us, and I'm number five, which actually is good, because the amateurs were terrible. So you're like the, you know, people had terrible appetizers or near the, you know, uh, you're, you're, the delicious. People are eating, and right, I, got, yeah. I have a group from Sotheby's that are there, but I didn't ask good. the girls. Because all of my stories were four letters. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So I would be careful. Anyway, so uh, I was fifth, and I came out. And on the heels of really bad stuff, yeah. people were booed and all that kind of stuff. And so I made fun of some of the jokes they made, and uh, I said, hi, everybody. Hi, girls. Hi, Jamie. And all shouted. And so, you This know, is like the, the slippery than wet, uh, than wet grass, pipes. The best crowd yeah, yeah. in the whole world. Anyway, so I tell them stories. I don't tell them jokes. And, um, you know, it was interesting because... Uh, some of the jokes were stolen from Noel Coward, yeah. and some of the jokes were stolen. I mean, it was just doing the best you could, knowing that this was really difficult, and you wish to hell you hadn't done it, okay? Anyway, it went okay. It went. It didn't go great, but it went okay, and then I had to give a Donald story, which was the one I just yeah, told yeah, you yeah, about, because yeah. I added stuff to it that I didn't want to repeat on yeah, your show. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then I, I went off stage, and I ran into the number six, who was a real pro, who was just trying out his new stuff before he went to Vegas. And he looks at me and says, I bet you're happy about one thing, huh? I said, what's that? He said, you get to follow, you don't get to follow me. <laughs> I said, no. He said, you killed the others. <laughs> anyway, so, good. so I never did it again. I, I thought about doing it again. I thought it was really kind of funny thing to have done. I met several well, people who've done it. I, I got you know, one of the things that I think is so inspirational about you is um, you've pursued so many different career paths. You've tried so many different things 
and you've achieved so much both professionally and personally. I mean, I love the fact that you're, you know, willing to throw your hat in the ring to do Caroline's. Yeah. Um, I guess that could be ego. That could be, that could be a lot of stuff. That could be, you know, narcissism. It could be all kinds of stuff. No. On the other hand, it is brave. Yeah. And no, it was brave to do that because that's hard. Well, that's I think hard. it's sort of like, you know, kind of like on the, the no regrets sort of a thing. I, I, I've been reading a lot as I'm, you know, turning 50 in a month, as you know, that when you get to a certain point in your life, you kind of think about, you know, am I doing what I always wanted to be right. doing? I mean, look, here, I started a podcast, yeah. you know, like sort of, yeah. you know, what are you pursuing, right? And um, what advice would you to give give to people? You had that switch, right, at 52, right. where right. you were, you know, pivoting from right. working in finance and, and looking at your next step. I mean, what... I, I think it depends so much on, on what you have done with your previous life. I mean... I mean, if you want to be a doctor, there's certain there's certain things you have to do to be a doctor. Um, you really don't get to you, you want to be not you want to go through that process and decide you don't want to be a doctor, do something else. That's fine. But if you if you want to go down a road of being a lawyer, you want to go down your road of being a dentist or a doc or whatever it is. There's certain certain paths you have to take to get there. Um, but there's a whole lot of stuff you can do out there in the world because you want to take a chance. And right. Just a function of can you afford it, I guess? Can you risk it? Do you ruin your career so badly to try something else that you've blown the career that you've worked on? So it's, it's, it's guts ball. It's really hard. I think that I think every situation is so individualistic that it's, it, would be, it would be hard to tell anyone what to do unless you heard each one yeah. mano a mano, honestly, because it's such a, a guts ball move. To decide to do something totally different with your life. I mean, it'd be wonderful if I could be a singer. Unfortunately, I don't have a voice. I would have loved to have been Frank Sinatra. You yeah. bet I would have loved to have been Frank Sinatra, but no I good. have thought about maybe a part two for me as some kind of lounge act, even if it's just a, you know, just a... Um, What's a lounge act? Like a singing, like a lounge oh, really? singer. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, like a... Um, Can you sing? No, no, but I like to perform. I, I, my, my, I mean, I, I can, you know, but th those people that do the things in Vegas, it's yeah. the, uh, you like that. Yeah, okay. Like, a, you know, sort of a... I think that's gutty. Yeah, it'd be fun. But I think that's really gutty. But you're very funny. Fun. So you have an advantage over most people is you're really funny. Um, and, and everyone that knows you says the same thing about you, that you're really funny. I know you're funny. And, you know, to be able to take humor and give it out to people is a wonderful thing. Because you make people laugh, you change their life. It's so important to be able to laugh, and I don't know. I just, I just think it would be. I'd love to come and listen to you. I was going to say, let's maybe we can do a. We could do like a Sunny and Share or a. Oh, right. uh, yeah, like or like who's, a, you, who's you, do be the, share? you do the comedy and I'll do. I want to uh, meet. I want to meet her so badly. Oh, I do. I want to meet her for one reason, which is the craziest thing in the whole world. First of all, I was a big fan of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's my age. Okay. She looks great, by the way. She's got blonde hair now. Oh, I didn't know that. Trestle Blonde. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you go on YouTube and you watch my father being streaked, okay, yeah. um, which was only seen by half a billion people, which is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear a laugh coming from the front row of the academy. It's her. And she has a very distinctive, high-pitched laugh. And I want to meet her, and I want to ask her what she was thinking when she saw that happening in front of her. We have to be able to make that happen. I and, don't... And her, and her laugh is so prevalent. If you listen to it, and uh, I, I just would, 
I know, you know, and, I, and I'll be able to tell her the story that when I asked my father what he was thinking when it yeah. happened, because my father uh, <laughs> was sort of a very precise kind of guy, and I'm sure it really pissed him off was this guy did that, because this is his moment now to introduce Elizabeth Taylor, who's yeah, yeah. the biggest star in the world, they're going to give away best picture, that's the end of the evening, they're on deadlines, they got union issues, like, you know, like, we've got to finish, we've got to finish, got to keep it going, and he's up there, and he's just warming up, and he's about to introduce Elizabeth. And the streaker comes. And I, I can tell you by looking at the way he looked. That now, were you watching it live? I was watching it on yeah, television. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I said, uh-oh, that's the look that he would give your brother if he cheated on his report yeah, card, yeah. that kind of look, you know. So he wasn't pleased. I knew that. But he ended up zapping the guy, and that pleased him, I'm sure. But I did ask him. I said, what were you thinking when he, he was running away from you? He said, I knew it wasn't Elizabeth's ass. <laughs> 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 I, I thought I told Elizabeth Taylor that later on in life she was not amused. I mean that. She well, I mean I'm sure. But that I mean, was funny. P- poor Elizabeth did go was, have a bit of you know some. Her, yes. her, her tush looked different. I think at different yes. different times in her probably. Uh, but in her life, having said that, I, yeah. I thought she should have laughed at that because that yeah. was pretty funny. Well, I think it's very funny. Yeah, it's very funny. Anyway, um, so I had this question I was going to ask you about regret. Mm. You know, what's your theory of regret? And mm. I was happened to be watching your dad on Dick Cavett mm. and he was asked the same question. Was he? And his response was he didn't have any regrets except it's hard to it's hard to think about what you regret except for the things that you haven't haven't done. Yeah. Well, it surprises me on that answer because um and then we'll go to the yeah. next next question. Um because when I got the call from him, he'd gone to the Mayo Clinic because he had been on an interview uh, on the Parkinson show, and he had stammered on his words as if he was loaded. Now, I knew for sure he wasn't loaded. He would never go on television yeah. loaded. Not a, not a chance. This is, forget it. No way. And so he took himself out to the Mayo Clinic, and they tested him, and he had Lou Gehrig's disease. He thought he'd had a stroke. And he called me up, and he said, uh, I, didn't, I don't have a stroke but I have something called motor neuron disease or called Lou Gehrig's yeah. disease. He said, do you know anything about it? Well, I did, actually. I said, that's, that's, that's terrible. He said, well, pick me up at the airport and we'll, go, and we'll go and have dinner. I picked him up at the airport and we got in the car and we were driving into town and he said, this is going to be tougher on you than me. I've had a good life. The only regret I have is the fact that your mother died. Oh. And apart from that, everything has been great. He was right. It was harder on me, honestly. And, and he, went, he went very quickly, which was really good news because that's a disease it's, that can it's, linger. And it's, it's horrible. It's horrible, yeah. So the fact that he answered he didn't have regrets, that's a shame because he did. Yeah. So um, me, regrets? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I clearly regret uh, having been an alcoholic. I, I clearly regret that alcohol kind of ruined my life. Uh, I don't think for one second Fanada and I would have gotten divorced had it not been for my drinking. And I think that was sad for the girls, and it was sad for me, and it was sad for her. And, uh, yeah, I would say that the alcohol was kind of ruined my life in a way. Uh, I wasn't able to accomplish a lot of things I wish I had been able to accomplish. Had so many good opportunities, you know. 
I went to a great college. I had great jobs. And it just got me, you know. And uh, I'm so glad it, it hasn't got me again that I've had 13 yeah. years of being sober and it makes a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference in my relationship with my grandson. Um, it makes a huge difference in my relationship with my girls. Yeah. Um, so I thank God for that. But um, if you hadn't had that experience, yeah. you wouldn't be in the position that you're in now helping so many people. Maybe. maybe yeah. Not. So I think... That's hard to say. Yeah. No. Because the only way you can really... I, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, as you said to the your friend that you were having lunch with who was yeah. stepping down. You said, do you have anybody on the board that, you know, is a friend of Bill or has gone to AA? Yeah. I mean, that's, you understand the struggle that, yeah. that the people that you're serving are going through, which is really impactful. Oh, I, I think you're right in that regard. Uh, yes, I think it's, it's, it's helped that I've been able to do that and I probably wouldn't have done it with the fervor that I yeah. do now, that I'm going to stick with this thing until I go out in the box. Yeah. Uh, or I can't. What's the line that we we like from the 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 uh, producer Spiegel? It's uh, I'm a pallbearer, not a not always a, a pallbearer, never yeah. a corpse. I'm going to use that, that. was that was uh, Sam Goldwyn, age ninety. Oh, that was Sam Goldwyn who said that. Yeah. How are you, Sam? I'm fine. Always a pallbearer, never a corpse. It's <laughs> so great. Well, I love seeing you. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming. That brings us to the end of this episode of the interview. A huge thank you again to Jamie Niven for joining us. And as always, thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. And until then, this is Leslie, and don't forget to join The Interview. The Interview.